0: invite you to just notice your next breath. And allow that breath, in your own rhythm and own time, to just take you down deeper into your awareness of your being. The the breath, as the Hindus talk about, is that Brahma, the breath of life. It is the infinite. It is that vibration. It fills our lungs with what it needs, and it releases what is no longer necessary. And so allow your breath in this moment when you take the next breath to take you down into your heart. Allow that heart to soften and to open. Perhaps you think of a moment of extraordinary love in your life. Allow that feeling tone to capture your experience in this moment. And then let your breath move down to your core, to that Second energy center, that second chakra a couple inches below your navel point, where intuition resides, where that direct communication of the unspoken word finds its way to us, that language. And then I invite you to imagine silver cords extending down through your feet, placing both feet on the floor, down into the earth, grounding you Connecting you. Ready now for spiritual practice. So I invite you to join me in this song. If you know it, and if not, just allow this song to be part of your ever-deepening experience. In this very room There's quite enough love For all the world And in this very room very room in this very room and I invite you in this moment to allow my words to be your words I would invite you while we pray to keep your eyes closed placing your tongue at the roof of your mouth just barely touching the top of your teeth in the back where the roof of the mouth and the top teeth come together just touching the teeth, that tongue. To practice the Yogananda taught for years and years, and what it does is connects another energy center in the body, helping us stay grounded, chin erect to the floor, as if we were meditating. And so what I know in this moment is we come together once again, mindful of the energetics we are, and directing our awareness, which directs that energy, I know that each and every one of us is that center of divine receptivity, divine availability, and perhaps divine experience. An ever-increasing experience of peace, balance, poise, equanimity. So I give thanks this day for spiritual practice, for spiritual community, for spiritual teachers who have blessed our lives, that have thrown us a rope of possibility, opportunity, and consciousness that it is our opportunity to climb up or not. I know this day is filled with amazing guidance that we tap into this infinite divine soul in a beautiful, wonderful way of celebration, understanding its mysteries, how subtle it can be, and knowing that each and every one of us is guided and directed in the most harmless, clear, and potent ways possible, making it obvious and apparent with our next longing to understand. For this I give thanks. I know this day is... It's beautiful in every way. We give thanks for our beautiful musicians this day, for all of our volunteers, for the shoulders of all the volunteers and, and the teachers that we stand upon. So grateful for life. For this I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. All right. So we're talking about soul, which is one of my, my favorite things because it's such a... Um, it's, it's, a it's a mystery, and there's so much information in the world around spirit, mind, and body. And yet the soul is such a, it's, a it, it's so elusive. And it can be a trickster. It's something that we don't access. We can work and work and work to connect with soul and, and have soulful experiences. And yet uh, it, can, it, it, can, um, it can be elusive. And it's, it's a bit of a, it is, it's not a bit of a mystery, it is a mystery at times, the subtleties of it. Nasruddin is a wonderful teacher, a Sufi teacher, and, and mystic, and clown, and, and uh, protagonist, and mullah, and, and uh, Nasruddin decides one day he's going to take music lessons. So he goes to the music teacher, and he says, how much for music lessons? And the teacher says, well, the first lesson is $15, and then it's $10 a lesson after that. And he said, well, great, I will we'll start with lesson number two. <laughs> and that's kind of how the soul works. It's actually, you know, one of the great stories that Jesus told, Jesus and the laborers. See, the soul's not about fairness. The soul's not about being uh, um, uh, just. The story where Jesus says about the laborers, the, the early laborers show up in the early morning and they work all morning and they work through lunch and they're into the afternoon with about an hour left and these other laborers show up, say, hey, we'd like to work too, and he says, sure, go ahead. And so they work for the last hour with the other guys that have been there all day and everybody gets paid the same. And, and, and part of the reason that I think Jesus told that story was that's how the soul works. It's not fair, but it's easy to become resentful. It's like, wait a minute, I've been here all day and those guys are getting the same amount of money I am. What's up with that? But it's a very interesting uh, uh, example of how the soul works because it's mysterious. So what is it that, what is it that cracks us open? And, and allows us to have that soulful experience. And for all of us, it's different. There's a wonderful story, another uh, Hindu story by a, a wonderful uh, man, Nuri Bey. And Nuri was um, a wealthy man and he had married a woman that was much younger than him. And he came home from a trip and his servant went to him and said, uh, Master, your wife has been upstairs with this large chest. And we don't know what's in the chest. Big you know, chest with a big lid on it. And she won't let us see what's in the chest. And so he goes up to the room and he says, well, what's going on with the chest? And she's sitting on it and, you know, what's the... the I don't quite understand this. And so she says, well, I will... He says, let's open it. And she, and she says, well, dismiss, dismiss your servants. Have them leave the room and I'll give you the key. And so as the story goes, they, he dismisses the servants and... She presents him with the key, and he reflects for a moment, and he stops. And As he's about ready to open the, the chest, he just pauses. And what he does is he orders four of his gardeners in. Now, Carl Jung would say four is the number of completion. Four is wholeness, is what four represents. So four gardeners come in, and he has the gardeners pick the chest up, carry it to a distant location, bury it, and they never say another word about it. And so the woman represents the mystery. And the man wants the mystery explained. And the problem with soul work is many times the explanation is not what we need. It's the experience we need. And so, what he, uh, the, in, the, so in this teaching story, uh, Thomas Moore, and this comes from Care of the Soul, says, How many times do we lose an occasion for soul work by leaping ahead for final solutions Without pausing to savor the undertones, to live in the mystery, to not have to have all of it explained to us. And many times, and so as he maintains his sense of, of dignity and power in the relationship by not having to have the answer, he helps maintain her power and dignity. So it's very paradoxical because, you know, in this world of beginning, middle, and end, and we've got to have resolution and let the truth be revealed, it's a, it's a different. It's a different way to function in the mystery of life. And I I think it speaks volumes to the relationship. He talks about, Thomas More. talks about a young man that was very upset with his partner and he wrote this really nasty letter. And in the meantime, he sort of had an epiphany, an awakening, and he called her before she got the letter and said, please don't read that letter. When that letter gets there, please don't read it. And so as soon as the letter came, she tore it up, threw it in the wastebasket. And then she sat there looking at the torn up pages in the wastebasket looked at it and looked at it. But what happened was, because of the, the agreement they reached, their love and their relationship became deeper. So, you know, to realize and recognize that here was someone that was acting out of anger and frustration and lack and limitation, and then, of course, her curiosity about, well, what did he say? and wanting to know. And yet, the love and devotion to one another expanded and grew because they were able to, to move through that. So it's examples of soul stories. Because we don't, you know, man, we all want to know the truth, don't we? We want to get to the nitty-gritty. We want to get to the resolution. And the soul doesn't work that way. So there's a wonderful story in, in uh, Harry and Moody's Five Stages of the Soul. We do not have it in the bookstore. It's a book in my library, and it's a very old book. And he tells the story of going to... Um, Mount Athos, traveling to Mount Athos, which is in the Turkey, Greece area. And there's these wonderful Byzantine monks that live there. And tells the story of going to the the, um, monastery and hearing about this amazing father, Father Piotr. Piotr. And Father Piotr lived high above the monastery in a cave. He'd been there about 40 years. And he had to go see this man. He wanted. He heard so much about him. And so uh, the author of this book said he, he went up, he found a translator and he found a guide and they climbed up a very dangerous path and they reached there and it was just after noon and Father Pietro had finished his devotions for the morning and they had a conversation. And, and first thing he noticed was there's no accessibility to water or food. And he said, you know, how do you do this? And he said, well, he said, every day I pray for food and nourishment and I lower my bucket. I lower a bucket on a rope down the cliff. And in the morning, I pull it back up, and it's filled with cheese and bread and the things that will keep me alive for one more day. And, and God bless the monks that are down there doing that every day for me. And he said, well, do you ever worry about maybe one day you'll pull the bucket up and it'll be empty? He says, well, I've been doing this now for 40 years. It's probably a little bit too late for me to start worrying about it. <laughs> but he said, through his conversation with Father Pietra that day, it was brief and it was filled with many charged silences. And he said the effects of our exchange lasted a lifetime. The old monk talked about prayer in the life of the solitary recluse, but it was what he said to me at the end of the visit that made the deepest impression. As my guide and I were preparing to start down the trail, I mentioned that we were headed to a church on the other side of the mountain. And Father Peter looked at me with blazing eyes and asked in broken English, Do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going? And he says, Well, of course. And the guide was getting a little irritated. Of course, we have a map. We know where we're going. He said, no, no, no. Do you know where you're going? And he realized, he said, that question has stayed with me my entire life. He said, because I understood very clearly that the old monk was asking me. He was asking me something that I did not have an answer for. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where my life was going or what its meaning and purpose might ultimately be. And I also knew that this ancient sage from another time in a distant teaching was telling me that it was my task as a human being to find out. It is our task as human beings and I don't think we can find it without becoming a deeper, deeply connected with our soul. Our soul is that that mystical deep, deep part of us that is a direct connection with that infinite divine presence that so many mystics have, have talked about over the years. Do you know where you're going? Last week, I talked a bit about mythology, and mythology has such wonderful stories in it. I remember as a young man, my brother studied Greek and Latin in high school. By the time I got there, they weren't teaching it anymore. And what happened in in, in a lot of that is we lost some of the great teaching stories that come out of the mythology. So I talked last week about the father. I talked about Odysseus and his journey in Homer. And he was a protagonist. He had all these experiences. He was away from his son longing to be a father to his son, and his son was longing to have a father. And so a surrogate showed up by the name of Mentor, which is where Mentor comes from. Fascinating stuff. But anyway, and so, and, and so this, these, these themes, these archetypes have been alive in us as humanity forever. And the, the, the Greek mythology, so many of those great stories tap into that. So Homer, today, today I said I would share something about mother, the, the qualities of motherhood. There's a Homeric poem to Demeter, And Demeter, I was saying this name, I was saying the next name wrong, but there's Demeter. She's also Mother Nature. She's a goddess. She's up there with Zeus and all of them, right? And I was saying, I called her Persephone this morning, and people straightened me out. Persephone. Yeah. Persephone was her daughter. And so in this story, Persephone is out picking flowers one day, and it's all these beautiful flowers, They're some good-looking babes, aren't they? I mean, these women were amazing. It's like, wow. It's a metaphor, okay? Metaphor for beauty. So Persephone is out picking flowers one day, and and, and they describe all these beautiful flowers, and she's just ready to pick a narcissist, which is, isn't that interesting? All about me? And the the earth opens up, and Hades appears and grabs a hold of her and captures her, takes her away. And so Hades is the, is the king. He's from the Lord. He's the Lord of the underworld. You know, they talk about shadow work. Well, that's that shadow part of ourselves that, that it requires our exploration. That's why it's a problem sometimes when we come into a, an environment of, you know, it's just an, the next affirmative uh, saying I have, the next affirmation, the next affirmative prayer that I get. And it's also part of that, that underworld of darkness that we must come to, to understand at a deeper level. We all have those those dark, that shadow work that is becoming more and more available as we move forward in our own evolution. And so Persephone is picking the flower she's captured. And what happens is she's she's drawn into this dark world, this underworld, and her mother, Demeter, is very upset. Where'd she go? What's going on? She goes to see Zeus. Zeus is away on business, which according to the mythology, Zeus approved of this because he didn't make himself available. It's divinely ordained. God, this is okay. This is for her highest and best, despite what it looks like because her mother is just beside herself. And I have to borrow a little bit of uh, Thomas More on this from Care of the Soul because he uses this story in this chapter. It's called the myth of family and childhood. He says, parents know how easy it is for their children to be attracted to people and activities that are dangerous. And to threaten, and that threaten to lead their children into dark places. Anybody ever had that experience? Anybody ever raised a kid besides me? Ah, where are they going? Ah, where are you? What are you doing? You know, it's just like the movies. The movie stars, you know, Marlon Brando, the bad boy. Russell Crowe throwing the phone at the guy in the hotel there and getting kicked out, all that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it, there's a part of it we, that we're drawn to by the. I mean, John Boyd from the Waltons was cool, but he was no uh, you know, Marlon Brando. So Demeter and Persephone are two aspects of the one mythic abduction. Something in us leans towards depth, toying with narcissistic lures, while something else tries to keep us on track in a world of familiar, wholesome values. And so Demeter's pleading and looking and frantically trying to find Persephone. And she finally gets fed up with this. Well, and then there's a negotiation that goes on. And interestingly enough, Hades says, okay, I, can, I will return her, but one-third of the time she belongs to me. Which is interesting, because one-third of the time we sleep, basically. So the Greeks already understood this. One-third of the time will be the dream world of sleep and the depths. So, so anyway, but uh, Diedema is very upset, and so she decides she's going to take human form. So she's, just, she's a d- divine presence that takes human form. Huh? Can you relate? All right. So anyway, she goes down, and she decides she's going to become a nanny to a young man. The story shows us how deep the love demands of any mother who protects her children whom she must, uh, whom she knows must be exposed to darkness and how much is expected from each of us whose soul, tempted by danger, dangerous lures, will need our own maternal attachment and caring. All mothering, whether in a family or within an individual, is made up of both affectionate care and bitter emotional pain. So, Dita, so she goes down and she becomes the uh, um, the nanny to... I think it's Demopoon, and she's put, he's put in charge of Demeter's charge, and she cares for him, anointing him with ambrosia, breathing on him, and holding him. Strong images of intimate caring for human life on part of divinity. Until his mother sees what is happening, oh, at night she places the baby in the fire in order to make him immortal. I mean, can you imagine walking in, and your nanny has got your kid in the fireplace, and, Burning things off. So the mother screams, What are you doing? And and, uh, Demeter becomes very angry at the mortal's failure to understand. And she says, You don't know when fate is bringing you something good or something bad, she shouts. It's a basic theme in the story in which Zeus and Hades, the Lord of life and the Lord of death, are at work. It's good advice from the mother of mothers. Understanding that sometimes things look dangerous from a mortal point of view may be beneficial from a greater perspective. So the myth of Demeter and Persephone teaches us: mothering is not a simple act, matter of taking care of the immediate needs of another. It is a recognition that each individual has a special character, and fate, qualities of the soul that must be safeguarded, even at the risk of losing ordinary assurances of safety, and normality. Burning the child in the fire of fate and experience goes against the natural desire for protection. The myth shows us that there is a difference between human mothering and divine mothering. So isn't it fascinating that what our souls are called and what our souls long to experience, it's always there working through us. And for us to, to not be able to stand in, the, in the, the underworld of our own being and not act upon it, because when we repress it, it comes, it comes roaring back. It gets played out in very destructive ways. But to have that discernment and the, and the groundedness in our being, to realize, wait a minute, that's, that's that part of me. That's that dark part of me, the duality. Back and forth, back and forth. In practical terms, whenever we sense we are overdoing it as mothers or being too sensitive to the needs of others, then it may be time to honor a greater mother to invoke the spirit of Demeter rather than to take the role upon ourselves. So it's quite, quite a wonderful teaching story about the dynamics of being a, being a mentor and a mother. In Howard Moody's book, Harry Moody's book, uh, The Five Stages of the Soul, he talks about, he articulates the five stages. And so the first stage is the call. We're called. The call is known by many names. It's conversion. It can be a summons. It can be a change of heart. It can, it, it's the idea of being going from the circumference to the circle, from appearance to reality, from the sensible to the intangible, time to eternity. So it's timeless. A Hindu uh, saint, Sri Ramakrishna, used to say, "You hear the roar of the ocean from a distance. By following the roar, you can reach the ocean. And as long as there is a roar, there must be an ocean." Abraham In Adham, mighty king of Balka, was one day sitting on his throne when he heard a noise above him on the roof, and he said, "Who's there?" And the voice came back, "It's my camel that's making all the noise." And the king said, "How, how is it possible for a camel to be on the roof?" And the answer was, how is it possible for a man who wishes to know God to sit on a throne? The next day, Ibrahim Adhan renounced his kingdom and set out to pursue the call. Because he couldn't stay. So it's the, the metaphor is, it can't sit where we are and, have, and, what's, and, and answer the call. We all have to take action. And in, in the case of this story, the example of the story is to have to give up everything to pursue it. That's what Jesus said. You know, the, the, the great... The pearl of great price. When you find it, you'd sell everything to have that. So Brother Lawrence, his biographer, added to these observations that there are too many of us now past middle age who feel soiled and weary. The bloom rubbed off of their aspirations. Our hopes scaled down to living a, of a life of mediocre everyday. Not, not anybody here, but in, you know, in this example. To such it comes like second wind to consort with a man of 50 who takes a hold of himself and finds heaven on earth among the pots and pans, among the pots and pans of institution's kitchen. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King said it in another way. He said, if you, are, you find yourself as a street sweeper, be the most incredible street sweeper you can be. Because it's not in the activity where the, the soul and the, and the divine meet. It's actually in the being but quite fascinating because we're so, we're so geared towards how this realm works. I mean, has anybody ever here been to the Maritimes? Yeah, okay. Is there, is, are there Tim Hortons in the Maritimes? Yes. Yes. There are. Okay, good. Are there uh, McDonald's there? Anybody see a McDonald's? Okay. So the point I'm making is we love conformity, and yet the soul is not interested in conformity. The soul is not interested in fitting in. But so much of what we do is about, well, I'm familiar with that. It's comfortable. And that's a, there's not, nothing wrong with that. But isn't it interesting how these chains, I mean, if we were, if, if chains, you know, t- these franchises, if that was something that we weren't attracted to or because we liked the familiarity of it, there wouldn't be any of them. There'd be a you know, different restaurant in every corner, you know. Second Cup, Starbucks, you know, we know what we're going to get when we go in there. they gotta You know, Starbucks, you've got you to gotta take a course in the language to even order there. I'll have a... Marciano, DiMaggio, Tistacoglione, Avente. I would like a large. What do you say, How do you say large here? You know? I mean it's a whole it's a whole course and but but the soul is not interested in conformity. The second one is the search. And the search, and there's a ton of choices. So we started search, a spiritual search. Gotta find a center, gotta find a tradition, gotta find a teacher, somebody that has gone before us. And so we've got all kinds of choices. We can be Zen Buddhists, we can be we can join AA. that can become our religion. We can we can study mythology, parapsychology, Christian mysticism, Christian science, religious science. You know, shucks, we can anything. Kabbalah. One of his students said to, uh, to Dr. Moody, he said, it has taken me a year to weed out the groups I don't want to visit. So I have a guy here this first time and he walks up to me and I, and I said, well, thank, because I said, well, thank, you know, some people come in and they don't stay and they leave and I always say, thanks for checking us out because you can check us off the list. I'm looking for a spiritual home and this ain't it and I said, that's the way to do it and this guy came to me the first time he'd been here today and he goes, do you have those same musicians every week? And I said, well, did you like them? He said, they're incredible. I said, well, then my answer would be yes, but we don't really. <laughs> <laughs> I had to check for you guys. But they, you know, you just love the music. And I said, no, but we have a wonderful rotation, and, and Martin is, and, and uh, Gord is part of that consciousness and that group, and thanks for checking us out. They had a lot of other great questions. The seeking after God, Sufi writer Jakob Sayed said, it is an endless process even for the saint. See, so it never stops even for the saint. And so if we forget, the great thing about understanding this is you forget, you just say, oh, I forgot. Well, no, not spend time beating ourselves up. So, oh, I forgot. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, was, I was being less than I could possibly be there. I forgot. Okay, I'll make an adjustment. Come on over here. Start again. Oh, no, no. I'm going to stay over here depressed and angry and upset and beat myself up for six months because I forgot to stop that. That's just, that's just self-serving. And it's a great activity, but it doesn't get us anywhere. Our search is an attempt to keep remembering what we already know. I never preach anything you don't know. One of the reasons we get together and it makes sense is because it's like, oh yeah, I remember that, that's true for me. I was giving you all kinds of concepts and ideas that were foreign to you. You know, we'd have four people here. Maybe four different people or maybe three different people every week. But, but there's a resonance here because it's the, there's a truth upon the ideas being expressed to stand in that spiritual integrity. One of my mentors right now, I have a lot of mentors, and I have prayer partners, I have mentors, I have this wonderful mentor that has shown up in my life, and we were talking last week, and he said, you cannot stand in your power and lie. You cannot stand in, if you want to be powerful, you want to stand in the, 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 grounded in your soul's being, you can't lie. That has nothing to do with other people. You know, it's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. They knew. But it isn't about you behaving well and impressing others. You can't lie. You start telling lies, all of a sudden there's a draining that goes on because you're out of alignment with the truth of your being. So you're not punishing anybody. You're not fooling anybody. You know, you steal from somebody, you're taking what is not yours. And it's draining, It's, it's debilitating. It takes a lot of guts to stand there with what you have and realize this is enough. And then not go into envy and jealousy about other people's experiences, but that's spiritual practice. Not because we want to be blessed because we're so good and go around telling you, "Yeah, I never lie." Are you kidding? There's things that I've said here to people that I know that because it, it was more appropriate for me to say that than to really say what might have been more appropriate. So you, you know, that's part of discernment as well. I'm just saying you cannot stand in your integrity and lie. You can't stand in your power and lie. So, the next one is the struggle. The struggle involves, and so we're not mythological creatures. We don't have Zeus and Demeter and uh, uh, Persimony. Persephone, thank you. That's much better than what I was doing. for Perse- Persephone, you guys say it for me. You know, years ago, Dennis Merritt Jones, one of my teachers, got up and did a whole talk on false fronts, and he kept saying facade. And I walked up to him afterwards and I said, I think you're talking about a facade. And he said, No, it's a facade. And I said, oh, Okay, great. I just thought I'd share. <laughs> I have just heard it my whole life. But... Hey, you know what? Don't say anything to Reverend Dennis if you see him, okay? In fact, <laughs> we prayed together actually yesterday. He just moved to Florida. We, uh, we do a lot of prayer work together. Great guy. So anyway, the struggle. The struggle involves disillusionment, what we thought was important. You know, we get to certain stages of our lives, and what we, we held as precious and had to do, and it's like, oh, my gosh, that's, no, that's not it anymore. Disillusionment with organizations, belief systems, ways of life, depression. Anybody, I'm, you know, anybody here depressed ever? Okay, a couple people. Regret. Oh, I will, I'll never do that again. Oh, my gosh. Impatience, futility, and cynicism, and we become set in our ways. Those are all parts of the soul work that show up for us. That's where. Our, so we've got our church, we found our spiritual guide, and then all of a sudden these teachers show up. They haunt us in thoroughly modern garb. All those qualities, and then they show up. They show up as insensitive bosses. Anybody ever had one of those? Faithless lovers ungrateful children, or bouts with chronic disease. But those are a few of them. They fall upon us from the realms of the in- in- inanimate in the shape of mounting bills, accidents and acts of God, rejection slips, tax audits, all of the large and small woes that beset the modern pilgrim. So there's our, there's our mythology. That's how it shows up in our lives. You know, It's not us picking flowers and then Hades comes up and grabs us and puts us in a headlock and takes us down into the underworld and... You know, gives us a noogie on top of the head. <laughs> it ain't that. And, and what he says is the struggle, the struggle is the way. The struggle is the way. You know, it's, it's like Mary Manna-Morsey says in, in um, one of my favorite parts of that course, she talks about losing her church, losing her ministry, losing her marriage, everything fell apart. And she said one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to go through it too fast because you want to extract every bit of learning out of it. Because if you don't extract every bit of learning out of it when you're in it, you'll just recreate it again so you get a little bit more. It's like, let's have your way with me now. What is there for me to know here? What must I do? Where have I been out of integrity? Where can I pull myself back up and realize that this truth too is for my soul? I mean, that's strength. That's courage. That's integrity. Then there's the breakthrough. The breakthrough is to know the sweetness of the infinite within us. And, and people of all traditions and all places and not traditions have had those experiences. Where all of a sudden, the the beauty of life is just so full and rich. The sense of oneness. Making the quantum leap into a state of at-oneness with something beyond ourselves, spiritual traditions tell us, is the reason we are born on earth and why we struggle. Not to propagate our species, not to satisfy nature, not to learn or create or love, but to discover those parts of ourselves that are connected to the supreme principle of the universe. To know the sweetness of the infinite within us, That is the cause, the reason, and the purpose, the only purpose of our lives. A breakthrough comes at a moment when the spiritual forces collecting inside of us can no longer be held in check. Isn't that amazing? So we think nothing's happened. Oh, I've done my 5,000th meditation, and I'm still just as fried inside and upset and angry as I could possibly be. What you're doing is you're building that resource, that that spiritual force collecting inside of us that can't be held in check. And it can be found anywhere. It can be found in any practice. It can be found in any activity. If we know that intention and we realize, wow, there's something happening for me here. I don't feel any of it right now, but I know it's happening, and I trust in that. Robert Asagioli says it's the inner awakening. It's characterized by a sense of joy, mental illumination that brings with it an insight into the meaning and purpose of life. It dispels many doubts, offers the solution to many problems. Yogananda says, in his practice, he said, evil exists. We have these discussions many times, and Ernest Holmes writes about evil in our textbook. He says evil exists, but once you have walked through that threshold and had that experience, it no longer touches you, it no longer affects you. Oh man, that's such a beautiful idea. Is that? And I just, for me, I just say that's for me. I don't know how to get there, but I'm, I'm, I'm picking that. You know, it's like you're like you're going through the grocery store. Always stay to the outside, by the way, because everything on the outside is alive, and everything in the middle will kill you. But you are in the grocery store, and all of a sudden you go, "That's for me. I'm going to have that. I'm having that." It's like that scene in uh, when Harry met Sally. I don't. know, I'll have whatever she's having over there. <laughs> And the last stage is the return. We return to the world changed. We have the experience. We re- and we're, we are changed. When I first met Laura, the, the book that she was reading, I always ask people what book they're reading when I meet somebody that I think is, is wise and wonderful and, and uh, incredible. And so I said to her, we are walking one morning. When we got together, we would walk every morning. We'd meet and walk and walk and walk and got to know one another. And she was reading the book by Jack Kornfield, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, which is a wonderful book about people that have had mystical breakthrough experiences and they go back to being auto mechanics. They go back to driving a bus. They go back to... I mean, I think there's part of a fantasy that once we reach enlightenment, that everything will change. When in fact, everything changes, but we just go back to what we were doing, and it's all new and different for us. So people like that can work at the corner store. There are many people out there, and, and, and Jack Cornfield says in that book, there are many people in the, in the world doing what looks like very ordinary work that are extremely evolved in consciousness. Life goes on as before and we go on in the ordinariness of, of life. I can hear Martin stirring back there and I want to get him up here to sing. Some people, for, for example, emerge from a breakthrough experience as kinder and better individuals. Others become deeply committed to service in humanitarian projects. And still others, particularly those who have undergone repeated breakthrough experiences over a long period of time, take their place as guides and mentors. So it's a beautiful thing. The last the last slide I have to share with you today is from Panash uh, uh, Desai's book, Be the Change. If you gather up all the parts of yourself and love them, that love becomes contagious. He says in his book here on the thir- 31st day, Be the Change, so many of us believe we have to do something. We have to take action in order to make a difference in the world. We, ha- we must have a higher purpose, a mission, a profound calling. And while action certainly has its place, it's really how we are. In the world, it makes a difference. So consider this. If you're at peace with yourself, you're already making a difference. That's why we meditate. That's why we do a spiritual practice. So we can be at peace with ourselves. Oh, there's that dark part of me. There's that part of me that gets envious or jealous or angry or frustrated or believes there's not enough. And to be able to stand in the awareness and the the divinity and and the authority of ourselves to realize that's not me. That's just an idea. And I don't feed that idea because I choose peace. We can donate money or send aid or volunteer to shelter, but the first thing we must do to take responsibility and stock of our own path is our path of consciousness. If you come into harmony with yourself and vibrate from that out into the world, you are de facto change. It's not about magnitude. It's not about grand nature of the contribution externally. If you gather up all the parts of yourself and love them, that love becomes contagious. So, ground yourself in the peace, and go out and love, and so it is.